0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at Soundtalentmedia.com.
1: The Daily Music Business Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Daily Music Business Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Barton, and today I'm here with a very special guest, John Scheel, who is an entertainment lawyer out of Ohio.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, first let me say thanks, Jesse. And thanks to the uh, Daily Music Business Podcast uh, for having me on. I, I want to make sure that we uh, say thanks to all those folks who are listening and uh, just want to say, I hope everybody's staying safe and uh, sane out there. And I uh, just want to really just express my gratitude first off for letting me come on the program and talk about this kind of stuff. Making money from your creative output is what we're all about. And it's the reason why I became a lawyer uh, many, many years ago, and uh, just to kind of give a little bit of a background of who I am and what I do, I've been a musician, I've been a sound guy, I've been a recording engineer, I've been a producer, I've, uh, I still am a lot of those things, but I, I've been playing instruments since I was a real little kid and then learning to record on, you know, Fostex 4 tracks and, and all the way up to the full Pro Tools HD rigs and the, all the cool stuff that we've got today. Um, Over the past three years or so, I've run sound uh, and lights for over 390 shows. Um, In the past five to to ten years, I I think it's probably triple that. Um, So I still am very active with uh, with bands on a production level. Um, Haven't done as much recording in the past couple of years, but I did my first LLC, my first entrepreneurial venture was – after finding all of my bands kept falling apart, I, I uh, had gone to a producer and I was about to spend a ton of money on, on an album. And I ended up dumping all of that money into my recording gear because other people wanted to record with me, um, just already. So, so that's what started me down this process. And then life had its way of twisting and turning. And, uh, I was working with a studio that was doing some really great stuff. Um, and, it was, it was a bigger studio, bigger mic closets and better, better gear than I had. And, uh, at one point I, you know, I had a child on the way and I turned to my buddy who was, who was the lead engineer there. And he said, you know, if I was going to go back to school, cause I'd kind of pitched it, you know, as I'm thinking about going back to school, getting a degree and something. And he said, if I was going to go back to school, man, I would go for a law degree because none of these people that we work with have lawyers, None of them have law degrees. And if we try to hire our lawyer, we just feel like a big vacuum gets attached to our wallet and it's just money flying out every minute and it's going to Manhattan and we need somebody here in the Midwest that we can trust and we can count on. And we don't want to have to drive to Nashville to try and meet some label lawyer without somebody, you know, here. So that's, that's ultimately what I did. And uh, I've been practicing music law, almost exclusively music law, for, for the past nine years. I still handle all sorts of stuff for local musicians. In my community, you know, I'm, I'm licensed in the state of Ohio, but I practice uh, entertainment law, which is, you know, deals with stuff that's all over the place. But if you were a local musician, I would also handle your DUI and your divorce, or I would find someone who could take on your case. So I do all sorts of stuff. But um, this is my bread and butter. This is what we're talking about today. So you and I have worked together in that context, and I'm, I'm just super happy to be passing on that knowledge to other people.
0: Absolutely. So John and I have worked together since 2013. Um, you know, on all of my music contracts and, uh, you know, as, as a band manager, all of the bands that I work with have, you know, general law questions. How do you set up an LLC? How do you do a, you know, membership agreement? Um, all of that kind of stuff. And you've been very helpful in that sense as well. So today I figured we'd kind of just go over, um, well, I had done a precursor episode saying that I would, you know, be breaking down a, um, a standard recording agreement, uh, for our listeners in the next few weeks. Uh, so I figured we could start that conversation today and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll end up splitting this into separate parts later, but, um, uh, I sent you two different versions of contracts. I sent you one that was titled good and one that was bad. I obviously am not going to be calling out any labels or bands or anything like that. So we'll just kind of go over this as a, a general discussion about, you know, what to look for in a contract. And then from there, I figured we could jump into some of the tricky clauses that make all of the difference in your career.
1: That's awesome. That sounds great. Now I should point out to the listeners that here in Cincinnati, we've got a conservatory of music, and one of my buddies teaches the music business course over there, and I regularly guest lecture on this very topic. And one of the things that I always tell the students in the class is that if you are an indie artist these days, you wanna look very clearly at the value proposition when you're handed a contract, because there are so many times where people who are not well-versed in either contract law or even in the music business, and they get handed a record label deal and they think, Yes, I've made it. But what right. you've made is really a lifetime worth of debt. If you're not at the level where you're you're really, you know, taking your car that's going 180 miles an hour and putting wings on it to fly, you know, you're you're wasting a lot of time and energy because they might just be dumping money into you that you owe them, and then you end up poor at the end of the day, and you have this record that You got a thousand copies of sitting in your garage and it's not, it's ultimately just led you to a lot of debt and heartache. And so you need to be at a certain level before you approach certain types of contracts, but every indie label is going to have a contract and you need to know what to know about the language of the contract so that you protect yourself um, so that you're, you're creating a partnership with people who are really going to help your career and you're going to help them, they're going to help you, and you're going to feel good about it at the end of the day.
0: Right. And so this kind of ties back into what I talked about on the previous episode, where I explained that you need to understand the reason why you, you want a label in the first place. Uh, I always talk about how um, a label deal is really just a big loan. And so you have to make sure that you, you understand the terms of that loan. Uh, but we, we talked about that a little bit in the last episode. So um, we'll, we'll start breaking down what a contract looks like. Most of the legal jargon is going to be the same on both contracts. Uh, There's just going to be a difference in, you know, maybe the recording commitment section. There's going to be a difference in the dollar value, what they're compensating you. But other than that, you know, the general terms are pretty much the same. Podcast listeners, I've attached this contract in the show notes. It would be helpful to have that in front of you.
1: All right. So the, uh, obviously the first paragraph starts to lay out um, the the parties to the agreement. And then it's going to get into very quickly what the services that are to be rendered by the artist uh, to the label. And very quickly, you're going to get into, I'm going to use the word term and terms. And in plural, that's going to mean defined terms of a contract. But in, in singular, the term of an agreement is the lifetime of the agreement, the the time period for the agreement so the term is consisting of an initial period and each option period as here and after defined and when when you see the word defined also look for things that are in quotes and in parentheses cuz those are defined terms
0: okay so right
1: there in section 1 paragraph b the term shall consist of an initial period quote unquote initial period and each option period as here and after defined exercised by the company So the option is exercised by the company uh, and and that happens often with these types of contracts. You hereby grant the company two separate options to extend the term for additional contract periods, each called an option period on the same terms and conditions except as otherwise provided herein. So then we go through that entirety of that that spells out what the time periods are and usually they're going to be Um, in fulfillment of your recording commitment and how long it takes them to put out a record. Usually there's a cycle of promotion and touring and whatnot that goes after that. So it's usually the term ends after a period of time, after they've had a chance to do all of that sort of stuff to promote Mm -hmm. the record.
0: Sure. So if we if we break this down to, you know, the standard person, basically what this says is the initial period, let's look at it as record number 1. That's what they're picking you up for. That is what you're guaranteed. You're guaranteed that they are going to put out one record for you, and an option period means that after you have fulfilled the initial record uh, you know, given them the record, they put it out, you've done the touring for it. They have the quote unquote option of saying, all right, we want one more. And then after that option period, you can do that whole thing again for a total of up to two extra times. So you're going to hypothetically, this is a one, what we call a one plus two album deal, meaning that you're going to get the one for sure. And they can extend it for up to two more options. And so, you know, for somebody that's never looked at something like this, they might say, "What are the reasons that a label would decide to do the the second record or not do the second record?" And usually, that has something to do with, you know, how much of the you know of the um, advances have been recouped, uh, what percentage of that has been um, made back, and then, of course. You know how well you've got along with each other during that amount of time. If people, you know, get in bad relationships, then uh, you know your chances of an option might be a little less likely.
1: That's that's absolutely right, and you're going to see this kind of stuff in even in personal management agreements. And you know, while a record company might spend a little more time looking at the dollars and cents in the bottom line and see whether or not it's worth it to them to continue working with you or investing in you, um, you know, a, the the personal management agreement might be reliant a little more on that relationship. And I've, I've actually negotiated on behalf of the artist to get out of the, the agreements because of the relationship, both on the record side and on the personal management side. One record company just wasn't doing enough. And it was clear that they weren't, that the reason for the lack of success was really them not doing enough on their end. And so, as we said at the beginning, you got to know why you're getting into it. What's the value that they're bringing to the table?
0: And like you said, right from the get go, not only how to get into it, but how to get out of it. Uh, You know, you always plan for the worst and hope for the best. Am I right? Yeah, you got it. You got it. All right. So this recording commitment, I'll let you go ahead with that one.
1: Sure. So the second part here is the recording commitment. Section two paragraph A says, You shall record and deliver in accordance with the terms hereof a sufficient number of audio-only masters to constitute the following number of albums during each contract period. Quote-unquote, the recording commitment, which shall sometimes be referred to as the committed albums. And that is, one, the initial period, one album, and two, during each option period, one additional album called the option albums and those that just break it down into layman's terms so you're recording you're committing to record an album you're committing to follow through on an option album and a second option album if they if they want it.
0: Right. So again, this is not the choice of the artist for the last two options. Um and here's the thing is like I, I think I specifically remember negotiating this contract and saying, "Well, hey, you know, what if you guys, you know, what if you guys want the option and and we don't want to do it." And I remember the person on the other end saying, "Well, if, look, if you if we don't if you guys don't want to do the option, um then you you don't have to." And that might be nice of them to say right but unless it's on paper and written clearly in the document that you signed then it doesn't really hold any water
1: that's absolutely right yeah yeah it's it is it is important to note that in that section b there um that they are talking about delivery time periods and the that you know timing is everything when it comes to uh releases and when you deliver stuff has to kind of hit because there's people downstream from you that are really, if they're doing their job and if the label's doing their job, they've got publicists and they've got promotion and, and they've got all sorts of people who are waiting on, you know, certain phases to happen. So that's why you're going to see things spelled out in terms of when you deliver the record. And and so if you're signing one of these, you've got to be, willing to commit to everything that they say and and it it's just spelled out there and
0: and this is another reason why it's so important to have um an actual entertainment lawyer look this over because you might you know just not know anything about the law and be offered a contract and like we talked about at the beginning just be so excited because this is you know the end-all be-all for you to say that you're successful and you might just run out and sign the thing because it's a deal and not realize that you know, according to this, that you have to deliver that, uh, you know, 10 song album in, in 30 days. Now, what if you sign that deal and you don't have the, the 10 songs done? You know, most of the time, that's not going to be a reason that they're going to, uh, you know, attack you or say that you breached the contract because they want your music, but it gives them an out right there if they say, sorry, you didn't deliver, we've changed our mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, in today's day and age, with the fact, that the the virus hit us here and everybody's been on lockdown, there's a lot of contracts like this that timing is now completely thrown out the window. And so because of that, budgets have changed. And so if they're looking at spending big dollars on a bigger act and you're on the lower rung and they suddenly don't have the budget anymore, they may look at this and violations like this could be enough for them to say, well, you didn't meet your commitment and we are not going to continue. We're not going to meet our commitments because you have not performed your end of the deal. So we're not required to perform ours. And that's a legal argument that can be made. And and when unexpected things like this virus happen and change the timetable, you can be sure there are contracts out there that are being broken right now as a result of it.
0: Now, I have a question about that. Uh, would, would this fall under the category of force majeure, the, the virus itself? Yes.
1: If there's a force majeure clause in this, um, then that that could be held applicable. Now, there's some standards that, that you have to use when applying that, um, and certainly courts are going to use standards to interpret that. And without getting too much into the weeds, you can be sure that this virus is going to be used as a force majeure event. It's an unforeseen act of God that will essentially take some contracts and nullify them.
0: Sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, I just figured it'd be good to, you know, um, touch on that a little bit because most people don't know what force majeure is. When we see that in a contract, a lot of us just go, "Ah, that's never going to happen." But you know, look, the world changed in in such a short amount of time, and uh, the whole landscape looks different. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: All right. So we went over the delivery of that. Um, let's see what we uh, what else we got here. Uh, so the recording procedures. Um, so this basically talks about uh, that the company shall designate what the recording budget is, um, that you shall not commence any recordings until you have submitted to the company, um, basically a budget for approval. Uh, You know, that just basically guarantees that, you know, you as an artist don't go, oh, we got the deal. They said they're going to give us X amount of dollars. I'm just going to go to my local studio and record this real quick and then get the label to pay me uh, back for that. You know, you you can't do that unless the budget has been approved by, uh, the label. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Yeah. So you've got a couple of sections highlighted here. Um, the recording procedures, um, the everything about a recording budget and everything about a marketing budget should be in writing.
0: Everything that is incredibly important.
1: So, Uh, You've got a second section here um, that is highlighted, and it's important that this be read. So, masters delivered hereunder shall not contain any so-called covers or selections designed to appeal to specialized markets, including, but not limited to, gospel, Christmas, and or children's music, unless specifically requested in writing by company. Now, I think the point here is that the record label, if they're going to have you sign, they want what they consider to be most marketable. And so you're going to see a variation of this recording procedures clause, even if it's dumbed down to one sentence. They're basically going to say something along the lines of your job is to record stuff that we think is commercially marketable. And if they're not looking for gospel, Christmas, and children's music from a hardcore band, um, that's cause they don't think they can sell the gospel version of, you know, and, and especially when it mentions covers, they, they want to make sure that you're giving them original content that they can go out and sell. Sometimes right. you'll be allowed to do a cover tune, but it costs a mechanical license and it adds a whole nother layer of complexity um, that, and, they probably and, it, don't.
0: and it's not that they don't want you to do covers. You can do a cover, but it's just something that's not going to fall under this particular agreement. You're not going to be fulfilling any sort of commitment to your recording agreements by making a cover song. You can have some other, uh, agreement with your label or whatever it happens to be that says, yeah, we're going to allow you to do this cover, but it's not going to fall under the original recording agreement.
1: Yeah. Typically you'll see, you know, on a shorter agreement you'll see a line that just says that it's what they deem to be commercially successful. And uh, so they get the right to kind of tell you whether or not they think that your recording is good enough or sounds good enough, even to the point where they might have some control over, over who is the producer and what they end up producing with you
0: and and that's and that's actually right here in paragraph a it says company and you shall mutually determine the musical compositions to be recorded and the producers of each of the masters and and like you said that's just to say you know you you turn in 15 20 songs to your label they're gonna help you whittle it down uh you know to 10 or 11 or 12 whatever it happens to be uh and and you're just gonna mutually agree upon them and honestly when that when you guys come to a disagreement, it probably says somewhere in here, but usually if there's a disagreement, the scale will tip in favor of what the label wants.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And I know we'll get into this a little later. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but most of the time, if you're signing a label agreement, they're going to want to own the masters. And so the tipping of the balance in that argument is is because they end up owning it for the purpose of exploiting it and you're you're deriving royalties but they're they're putting in the money up front and they're basically buying it outright you know right. and then they're going to go try and sell it and if they want to put the team together to go sell it they have to have a product they believe in and they want to sell and it can't just be what you want them to sell Does right makes sense
0: absolutely and and that's why you hear these you know, stories of bands getting quote unquote shelved or records getting shelved, meaning, you know, the, the band went and they recorded the album uh, all new songs and they gave it to the label and the label for some reason or another said, you know, we're not going to put that out. And sometimes it's not about the composition. Sometimes there's other reasons, but that gives uh, you know, you some protection if they shelf a record, um, and also sometimes gives them the protection to say, well, we don't have to put it out, but you know, you've fulfilled your contract. You can get out of it. Yeah. So that pretty much covers the recording procedures. Um, you know, how, how we go about getting the, the label to pay for the recordings. Um, you know, how we go about setting up the sessions and what songs we are going to actually have produced and by who. Um, so now that we've covered that for the most part, we can, probably you know jump down here to recording and packaging costs real quickly and then we'll go to the rights
1: there's something called cost of goods sold and um, that's that's you know an accounting term but it's also in the olden days um, there were lots of ways that record labels could screw over artists by adjusting the the cost of physical goods so um, back when everything was sold, you know, in a vinyl or, uh, or a CD, um, there were called cutouts that if a label said, oh, these are not, you know, optimum quality, uh, the, the packaging costs, uh, et cetera, would deduct from the amount of royalties that, a that, a, uh, band would actually get they would call them cutouts because there was a little notch that was cut out of the vinyls now sometimes record companies would take those vinyls that the notch was cut out of the the, um, case or the sleeve and they would take those cutouts which were supposed to be basically trashed and they would take them and sell them at wholesale and they would just keep all the money they got from the vendors Hmm. uh, and and they would not pass along the money as royalties because they were quote-unquote you know seconds or or cutouts. That was, that was the term. So they were pocketing mad amount of cash and not accounting for it. And that doesn't happen as much in today's world because we're talking about so much digital streaming and digital sales, which is a little bit easier to account for. But when you talk about packaging and packaging costs, keep in mind that that can lead to things where they're not going to pay you on stuff that, if it's sold under certain kinds of packaging. So it's just pay attention to things like that. Pay attention to marketing costs, pay attention to all the hidden costs that you might not necessarily think about uh, when you're first jumping in. And I should say that while this contract is 19 pages long, some of them can be five pages or three pages and some of them could be 45 pages. And um, so this is kind of right in the middle of, of all of that. And, the next section, section five, is really important. Before we jump to
0: that, let me let me mention, just because we're going to be talking about uh, recording budgets uh, later on in this contract, but right here, if I remember correctly, with the band that this came from, they had already come to the table with the record completed and produced, uh, but the the label wanted to try a different master to give the record a little more thump. So since the band came to the table with the album already done, this just shows that they are um, putting up $2,500 for a new master of the record that was already made by the band. Uh, and then I believe that there was also a, a non-recoupable budget set aside for marketing this first record that was equivalent to what the band had spent on making the record itself.
1: Well, and, and on your point there, the, the, the um, fact that you're uh, that this that this contract came from a label that was willing to do that uh, does speak volumes about the teamwork that that you really want from a label. You need to have someone who you're you feel like you're good business partners with who are willing to put some skin in the game and do things that are you know to to produce and promote this product. And in that case, when you mention non-recoupable marketing budget, that's a really good sign.
0: That just tells me that they believe in you as much as as you should yourself. You know what I mean? Uh, they're not saying, look, well, we don't know what's going to happen. So no- we're willing to spend all the money in the world, but you're going to pay us back for everything. This is uh, you know, this label had done, you know, basically a, a good faith payment saying, look, we believe in you and we're going to, we're going to put the risk out there just like you guys are.
1: That's awesome. So the next really big thing you want to pay attention to is the rights. Now, some people uh, will, will tell you uh, that you don't want to sign over anything to the labels. You want to keep it all. You want to keep your publishing. Um, you want to keep your master rights. The big thing that you have to understand is that if you are getting on an indie label that is not necessarily the vehicle that's going to get you to the biggest point in your career – you're going to want to know how to revert those rights back to you. Right. If you have to buy it out, if you have to break the contract. You also have to understand that if it doesn't specifically say the words work for hire anywhere in there, then you're, you have the right after 25 years to get your masters back. That's, that's a newer wrinkle in the, in the copyright law. And it's why some of the big, big artists, um, you know, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, James Taylor, some of these folks um, who were suing record labels a few years ago, when their records were starting to hit that 25 year mark, they were wanting to get them back because they hadn't actually signed work for hire agreements. This one in section B there, just the third line down right in the middle of the line, it says that the the, the inception from the inception of the recording, it's deemed a work made for hire. And that language has to be in there if they're going to own your master's um, because under the U S copyright law, that's, that's kind of a requirement. Okay. Um, and so they're looking to say that everything you're doing for this is a work for hire paid for by them. And you're going to see that the title 17 in the U S code section 106 is right there in the middle of that paragraph. You're going to see those two things typically, uh, in the same paragraph, you know, rights paragraph where they're saying we're a major label. We're putting money up. We own your masters and you're doing this as a work for hire. And if you do sign it where it says it's a work for hire, then you can't come back in 25 years and get your rights reverted back to you. Now, as a, as a lawyer, I always argue, uh, on behalf of artists, uh, typically, you know, when, unless I'm hired by the label, but, um, Normally, I'm working with artists, and I'm trying to get them to understand that um, they don't want to just rush into these kinds of contracts, and they want to think very clearly, do they want their grandkids to be generating royalties from this, or do they want the, the record label? So I always talk to them about things that are outside of their normal scope of thinking, because copyright really... Copyright lasts for 70 years plus the life of the the original author. And Hmm. so you want to know who owns the copyrights. You want to know what happens to them. It's a long-term thing. And and every time you write a song, it's like building a house. You can rent it. You can, you know, sell it. You can, and and if if you are going to sell it, you're giving it away. And then, you know, what this agreement is going to do is give you some royalties back, but basically they own the house. It's their house and they can do what they want with it so rights is really important that's why in this pair in this in this contract it's almost a page um, but those are the two key things I, I think you should be aware of is work for hire and you know the fact that they're they're owning your masters um, and you're giving up things like moral rights or you know saying suing on the basis of it not being fair or, or other sort of considerations and As far as work for hire is concerned, you will see that kind of language um, for studio musicians, people you hire to bring in uh, to to work on an album. All of them should be signing work for hire agreements, or they could be considered co-authors of the song that's written.
0: And And then they could be entitled to some of the royalties that you make on that.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: All right, guys, so this is just part one of a series we are doing on breaking down recording contracts. There is way too much information in here for me to fit this into one episode. Uh, This episode alone was already way over our time limit, but that's okay. Uh, It's very knowledgeable stuff. It's very important, and we will continue this breakdown on next week's episode. So thank you all for listening. I appreciate everybody uh, sticking with me till the end. If you have any questions for me, uh, send me an email at jesse at pinupartistmanagement.com. I'd be happy to answer any further questions about this subject or uh, talk about any other topic that you might like. Please also add me on social media. It's jesse AIB on Instagram and Twitter and just my name, Jesse Barton, on uh, Facebook. All right, that wraps up part one of this uh, series on breaking down recording agreements. I will see everybody next week.
1: Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform.